And that is our goal, isn't it? To become more like Christ in all that we do and all that we say and who we are. So if you missed the past week, we've started a new eight-part series during the season of Lent called Letting Go. And that's what we're doing through all these processes and these different messages. It's learning how to let go of a lot of different things and allow God to take hold. And as a reminder, Lent is a time for us to assess ourselves and make some adjustments. Um, it's a time for us to recalibrate to God's way of living and loving other people and loving God. And the purpose of repentance and reflection is not to lay ourselves under condemnation, but to offer ourselves up for salvation. Uh, the, the following verse in John 3.17 is basically our guide. God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So today, we're going to see that overcoming temptation is possible in our lives as we become rewired by Christ. Did you ever feel like your hard wiring is a little messed up? <laughs> Something isn't quite right? Jody was experiencing that with our computer back there. I'm wondering what in the world is going on back here. Maybe she even prayed, Jesus, rewire this thing. <laughs> but we all struggle. We all struggle. We all worry. We try to change and get better, and sometimes we get so frustrated at our lack of progress. Sometimes we might wonder, what is wrong with me? Why do I make the decisions? I, why do I say the things? I, why do I do the things I do? If sometimes you feel a little messed up. Remember that God does not condemn you. He actually came to save you. He sees your mess, and it doesn't scare Him. He understands and He enters into our lives to save us, not condemn us. It's important to remember that. There's a word I want to introduce to you today that describes our potentially messed up internal hardwiring, and the, hardwiring and, the, and the word is called habitus. Habitus. If you've never heard of that word before or you think that's a made-up word, actually, no, it's, it's in the dictionary. It sounds a lot like habits. But it's not the same thing, even though they're related. Habits are what we do. Our habitus is who we are. It comes from a French sociologist named Pierre Bordeaux. Basically, it means our internal, habitual, reflexive behavior. Uh, when we automatically react to something, we are acting out of our habitus. So whatever situation comes our way and our first initial response... It, that's our habitus. That's what we, how we respond, why we respond. Our habitus is the combination of our beliefs, our understanding, our personality, and our habits, everything. All those things combined together. It's the core of who we are and why we do what we do. So there you go. You finally got a name for it. All the different things that you've done before. But to realize here, though, our habitus can be good or bad. It can be courageous or it can be fearful. It can be selfish or it can be generous. It can be sinister or it can be Christ-like. It will choose to love or it will choose to hate. It all depends on what we believe and how we put it into action, what we believe over a long period of time. A gentleman by the name of Alan Creeder, an American Mennonite historian, writes about the early church. He writes, The early Christians rarely grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, 
They grew because their habitual behavior was distinctive and intriguing. Their habitus enabled them to address the common and terrible problems that ordinary people faced in ways that offered hope. When challenged about their ideas, Christians pointed to their actions. They believed that their habitus, their embodied behavior, was eloquent. Their behavior said what they believed, and the sources indicate that it was their habitus more than their ideas that appealed to the majority of the non-Christians who came to join them. So isn't that true? Isn't that true? It's basically their actions spoke louder than their words, (laughs) and that's true for us today. What we do will probably shout out louder than what we say. People will catch that, and they'll also catch if they match up what we do and what we say. The early church was full of people whose internal core had been completely rewired by Christ into something hopeful, something optimistic, something patient and joyful. They lived and they loved and they reacted differently in ways that offered hope, especially to the terrible problems life brings to all of us. They lived with incredible love and self-control that non-Christians were strongly attracted to. How do you go through that? And maybe you've had people come to you as well asking you, how are you dealing with this loss? I don't know if I could go through life. And then as Christ is your Savior, you're going, well, I don't know how I'd be able to do it either without Jesus in my life. And so you've been rewired in the way to be able to handle those situations. Not that it's easy. It's difficult. But you know you've got hope through it. I wonder, is our habitual behavior distinctive and intriguing? Do we face common and terrible problems in ways that offer hope? Are our actions reflective of what we believe? Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that demonstrates Jesus' habitus. He had one as well. This passage is called the the testing of Jesus because after Jesus fasted 40 days, he was tested by the devil. And the way Jesus responds gives us a good look at his habitus. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, starting with verse 1. You can look it up in your Bible. It will be behind me as well too. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. 
So let's start by making a few observations here about this. Jesus had just finished 40 days of, of fasting and then was tempted by the devil. And isn't that his strategy a lot? He kicks us when we're down. He gets us at our most vulnerable spot, most vulnerable moment, and he tempts us when we're at our highest crisis. So first the devil tempted him to turn stones into bread. Then the devil tempted him to throw himself off the temple. And then he tempted Jesus to worship him and in return receive all the kingdoms of this world as his own. So all these different things the devil tried. And did you notice, though, how the devil barked at Jesus in those ways? Say this, do this, do that. The devil's demanding. The devil's bossy and manipulative and, and hurried. Jesus is never like that. If you ever feel God is speaking to you like that in a demanding, bossy, manipulative, and hurried way, stop and realize that's not your heavenly father. <laughs> it's your accuser. Satan's coming and trying to deceive you. The devil talked to Jesus as if the devil was in charge. But did you notice this? The devil barked three commands at Jesus to no effect. Didn't have any effect on, on Jesus. And, and then Jesus spoke one command towards the end there of, of that portion of Scripture. And the devil immediately obeyed. <laughs> he had no choice. Jesus has all authority over demonic powers including the devil. And the thing is, you have all of Jesus. So keep that in mind when you're going through difficulties. Not that you do it on your own power. It's because you have Jesus in you. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. We have the fullness of Christ in us. Another quick observation is what the devil used to tempt Jesus with. What were the best tools the devil could find in his toolbox to give him the best shot at derailing the Son of God? Well, the devil tempted Jesus with lots of food, turned these stones into bread. He tempted Jesus with safety and security. Throw yourself down and you will not strike your foot against the stone. And the devil tempted Jesus with wealth and with power. All this I will give you, if you. The best tools the devil came up with were comfort, security, wealth, and power. And Jesus rejects them all. And what does that tell us about the priorities of God? Comfort, security, wealth, and power are the exact same temptations the devil uses to derail us. You want to feel comfortable? You want to have security? You want to be wealthy? You want to have power? Those are all things that we kind of clamor after every now and then. And the devil knows it. And they can easily become idols in our life. But not because our desires are too strong, but because they are too weak. God has much greater things in store for us than just comfort and security and wealth and power. Those are things of this world that will fade away. We are people who want more. We long for love. We long for justice. We long for peace and purpose and joy. 
Those are the better things. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When, ev- when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the beach, we are far too easily pleased. <laughs> it is so true. So how did Jesus respond? The devil tempted Jesus three times with the most powerful ammo he had at his disposal, and each time Jesus held strong and overcame the challenge. So let's look at Jesus' habitus here, his internal reflexive behavior. Jesus responded each time with Scripture, with relational trust in the Father, and with self-control. These three qualities are part of the internal wiring of Jesus. The human part, we recognize He's fully human and He's fully God. The human part of Him that can also become part of our internal wiring as well. So Jesus responded with Scripture three times. Three times the devil tempted Jesus, and three times Jesus responded with Scripture. Jesus didn't have a pocket Bible or an iPhone, of course, so these verses were planted deeply and firmly in his heart and his mind. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Scripture. That should be a key for us as well, too. And if Satan's coming our way and wanting to tempt us with whatever it is, we should have Scripture on our minds and our hearts ready to defend against devil's schemes. When we routinely read and reflect on Scripture, it becomes part of who we are. And here's the neat thing about it. When we, we, we suddenly find ourselves in a tempting situation, the Holy Spirit brings those important verses to our minds and to our hearts in order to strengthen us and encourage us. Scripture gives a voice to the Holy Spirit in our heart and our mind. So learn it, read it, memorize it. It's a good tool against the devil's schemes. Because the devil deceives. He did that with Adam and Eve. He deceived Eve, saying, this is what God said, right? And he twisted it. Better believe that he'll twist Scripture a little bit, too, to make it sound kind of right. And if you've got Scripture memorized and you're living God's Word and reflecting on Scripture, you'll know, hey, wait a second, that's not right. That's a little different. (laughs) It's a little different. So you'll be on guard. Now, Jesus also responded out of relational trust in the Father. This takes the Scripture response one layer deeper. See, Jesus responded with Scripture, but beneath those verses was a relational trust in the Father that the Scriptures point to. Jesus didn't have a relationship with the Bible. (laughs) He had a relationship with the God of the Bible. The Bible exists to point us to a living God, a loving Father. Relational trust is is faith in the person of God and trust in His character. It's an awareness of His abiding presence in our lives, that He never leaves us alone. Relational trust is walking with God through the ups and downs of life, receiving love and 
life from Him in all circumstances. And relational trust knows that God is always present, is always loving, is, is always helping, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. And it doesn't matter what happens to me. It matters who is abiding in me, takes you through those difficult times, helps you through life storms. This relational trust was deeply ingrained in Jesus' habitus. It can be ingrained, also deeply ingrained in us as well, too. When you trust God, what He can do in your life, what He has done. We, we are people who need to be reminded. <laughs> we forget easily. And we need to be reminded of what God has done in our lives. Or also, too, what God has done in someone else's life. And be encouraged. God could do the same thing as well. So Jesus... Jesus responded out of relational trust in the Father. He also responded with self-control. There's a good one, isn't it? Self-control. Jesus' habitus, his reflexive response to the devil, was also one of self-control. Now, most of us feel we lack self-control, or at least we lack a large amount of self-control. But but I want you to know that self-control is something we can all grow in. It can be part of our core response. So if you have some trouble with self-control, maybe there's, these things might, might help you grow in that way. There are four ways you can grow in self-control. One of, them, one of them is to understand your identity in Christ, who you are in Christ. It affects your activity. We often fail because we don't remember who we are, and more importantly, whose we are. Paul writes, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, uh, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So it's, it's significant in, in Galatians 5.24, that verse, that crucified is in the past tense. See, Paul is saying your old life of giving in to sin regularly is gone. That's not who you are anymore. You're now in Christ. You're a new creation. And even though crucified is in the past tense, it has present implications as well. While our old self is gone, we must continually be putting indwelling sin to death, making sure that Satan does not get a foothold in your life. Remembering your your identity in Christ is the fuel that will help you to kill sin. Another way to grow in self-control is to keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> I'm convinced more than ever of the need for the power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. This is especially true when it comes to self-control. You can't do that on your own. You can try, but uh, good luck. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives for that to happen. Again, we turn to the Apostle Paul. says in Galatians 5, If we live by the Spirit, let us also Walk by the Spirit. Part of growing in self-control is walking in step with the Spirit each day. In the Greek, this expression literally means to walk in line behind a leader every step of the way. Have you ever... I can't remember who I've done this to. It's been a number of people I've done this to. It's just... It's stupid. But you can get behind someone, and they're walking along, and you can get behind them and suddenly just take a step as they take a step and get right in step with them, just almost right underneath their feet. 
It's that kind of thing, walking in step with Jesus and being able to follow along that way. Watch out for, <laughs> watch out for Ellen. She might be doing that to you sometime today. Sounds like. <laughs> but to be in step, walking in line behind the leader, it's a cooperative effort. You can't expect to grow in self-control by doing nothing, but growing in self-control takes more than just human effort. As you appropriate the Spirit's help in prayer and seek to obey God's commands as revealed in His Word, the Spirit will empower you and help you to obey. So we need to cry out to the Holy Spirit for help. If you find yourself in situations like that, have the Holy Spirit help you and keep in step with Him. Another area, or another way we can grow in self-control, remember the right things. Remember the right things. There's a lot of things out there that we can be reminded of and we don't need to be reminded of. Someone once said, when tempted to sin, remember, obedience is joy. <laughs> remember that. When temptation comes, we must remember that obedience, obedience is joy. But we also must remember the other side of things, that sin brings misery. And potentially, it can ruin our lives, as well as lives around us as well. When you're tempted to sin, you need to talk to yourself. Remind yourself. You mean, out loud. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the negative effects of sin. How it can distort your walk with God and how it affects others around you. Don't listen to those urges and impulses alone. Give yourself the truth. Remind yourself of the truth. And the best way to give yourself truth is to recall Scripture. One portion of Scripture that speaks of thinking on the right things is found in Philippians 4.8. It's the filter Scripture for right thinking. Philippians 4.8, mark it down. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's where our mind should be. So when we do that, we have a, a, a shift then, presenting truth in our minds and reminding us what we should be thinking of. And then finally, one last thing about uh, growing in self-control. Get satisfied in Jesus. <laughs> really? Just get satisfied in Jesus. <clears throat> John Piper says this about that. Uh, he, he, this quote from him, he says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. I love God so much, I don't even care about this other stuff. I don't want to hurt my relationship with God because I love Him so much. I don't want to fall into sin. Are accountability groups helpful? Maybe. Most likely. Should you get protective uh, internet software? You could. Should you go to a small group? Yes. And all these things have their place, but they're not enough. You can lie to your accountability group. You can cancel the software. And you can skip small group as well. If your heart is not satisfied in Jesus, all the systems that you set up to kill sin will eventually fail. Addicts will find a way to get their fix. Imagine you go on a date with your spouse and you enjoy your favorite meal together. 
while you're full uh, already, you make room for dessert. Yeah, that happens sometimes. And now you're stuffed. You're enjoying time with your beloved. Your heart is full, and so is your stomach. When you get home, do you reach for the saltine crackers in the cabinet? No, you're full. You're stuffed. You don't need any more food. You're already full. So the saltine crackers have no, no way of catching you. The same is true with fighting sin and growing in self-control. If your heart is full of Jesus, you'll be less likely to reach for sins that are all right around you, the temptations that are out there. I have no hold on you because you're so full of Jesus. We talked about that a little bit in the membership class yesterday, about how we need to enter into holiness when we surrender our all to Christ and say, you know, I... I'm sick of this cycle of sin going around, temptation comes, and it's another thing that Satan brings my way, and I go, I fall into it, and I sin, and I ask for forgiveness. God, is to, God forgives us when we come to Him. I live pretty, pretty well after that falling Christ, but then temptation comes again, and I fall in, and it's just over and over as a Christian, and it's got to be something better, and there is. Second work of grace in your life, coming to Christ asking Him to cleanse you from this habitual sinning and to receive Him as not only your Savior, but your Lord. That what He tells you to do, you'll do. Where you go, you'll go. And you love Him so much that none of these things will ever have a hold on you. Temptations will still come. Satan's going to try. He'll do his best in trying to get you falling flat on your face. The thing is, when we love God so much, when we're full of Jesus so much, there's no room for any of that stuff. It doesn't appeal to you. And let me share one other thing, something practical for you maybe to put, put down and growing, growing in self-control. It's called the 10-10-10 rule. The 10-10-10 rule. Something practical for you to use. Found this in my readings. An idea to help you grow in self-control, especially when you're facing a test or temptation, of course. Um, the 10-10-10 rule is when you ask yourself, if I do this, how will I feel about it 10 minutes later? How will I feel about it 10 hours? How will I feel about it in 10 days? Ask yourself, as you are faced with temptation and you're thinking, I can't help it, I'm going to, uh, someone help me, think of the 10-10-10. How am I going to feel 10 minutes later? How am I going to feel 10 hours later? How am I going to feel 10 days later? If I cheat on my diet, how will I feel about it in 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days? If I look at something inappropriate on the Internet, how will I feel about it 10 minutes later, 10 hours later, 10 days later? If I spend money on this thing, how will I feel about it 10 minutes later, 10 hours later, 10 days later? And on and on it goes. If I lash out in anger, how will I feel about it in 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days? This approach helps you see your future self and how you feel about your decisions in this moment. This is a powerfully effective way to overcome temptations and struggles. It, it illustrates the, the concept that decisions determine destiny. <laughs> what you decide right now will determine what's going to go on down the line there for you. It has effects. And you want to have the best destiny. So make the best decisions by taking the time to do so. You can also use the 10-10 rule to the positive. If I exercise now, 
How will I feel in 10 minutes? Probably a little sore, <laughs> a little tired. 10 hours from now, probably really sore, especially if you haven't done it in a while. 10 days from now, maybe you're going to be thankful. If I shut down the computer and walk away, how will I feel in 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days? If I put down the junk food and instead eat something healthy, how will I feel in 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days? Probably pretty good. <laughs> probably pretty good. And did you know, uh, one, one final thought here on self-control, it is the fruit of the Spirit. Reminder, newsflash. It is the fruit of the Spirit. This means as we walk with Christ and abide in Him, over time we will grow more and more in self-control. In fact, once you know that you have access to a ridiculous amount of self-control, God is infinite in His love and goodness, and we, He will give you good gifts. Self-control is one of them. We can't say to ourselves, well, I'm not like other people. I wasn't born with a lot of self-control. No one was born with a lot of self-control <laughs> because it develops over time. Situations that come our way, we learn. <laughs> we, we've, like I said, we have our grandchildren over, and uh, we see the example of how self-control can grow in them. <laughs> they can learn more, and we can as well, too. As well. <laughs> but a toddler has a ridiculous amount uh, of uh, lack of self-control. And you, you realize that, and you can see that. Now, children sometimes have a difficulty with that. I want to share with you a video that uh, talks about the marshmallow experiment. Uh, if you haven't heard of it before, it's pretty crazy uh, as you watch this, this video. Self-control. Self-control. Uh, <laughs> not telling. <laughs> Maybe you saw yourself in there or someone you know. You're probably poking the person next to you, and yeah, that's you. But you have direct access to every bit of self-control that you need. And God is so good and loving that He wants to develop in relationship with us. And that means we get to work it out together as we live in relational trust with Him and practice self-control. Now here's the good news. When you're facing temptations or hardships, you can respond with Scripture Respond with relational trust and self-control. It is possible that your internal reflexive response to temptation and hardships will become so strong that you can withstand anything and everything the evil one throws at you. Deep change will happen in our lives. Transformation can happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Renewal. Renewal is possible for all who follow and believe. Jesus can and will rewire our core as we wash our minds with Scripture, we live in relational trust with the Father, and we grow in self-control. Our lives will be distinctive, they'll be intriguing as we overcome common hardships and temptations in a way that gives hope to others around us. So the question for you today, you need a little hardwiring going on, rewiring in your life? Because Jesus is able to do that, able to fix us up and prepare us. We just need to submit our lives to Him in such a way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this time together. Thank You, Lord, for speaking to each one of us. And Lord, if, if there's someone here today that this message has kind of hit right where it needed to hit, I pray that, that we would respond in obedience. And that maybe, Holy Spirit, You're tapping on our shoulder 
saying, you need this. You need to work on these things, and I can help. The way, Lord, that we need to do that is just to submit ourselves to you, open ourselves up, allowing you to take control. So, Lord, I pray that you'd meet with each one here today, affirming in their lives of, the, of how we're following Jesus, but also, too, revealing to us in areas we need to continue to submit to you. Thank you, Lord, for your message today. Thank you for the cute example of the kids, but it just helps us remember self-control is a key thing in our lives. And once we have that and we can continue on growing in that, it's so much better down the line, especially when it comes to temptation. So, Lord, help us to follow after you and how you uh, avoided those temptations the devil threw your way. When the devil comes after us and tempting us in, in, in our lives, pray that we would use the same strategy and techniques and tools that you've used. Help us, Lord, to put this into practice and to guard against the devil's schemes. There is so much at stake if we fall into temptation. So I pray, Lord, that you'd keep us strong. And through this week specifically, give us opportunities to put self-control into practice to grow in that and in our relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.